have some claims, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. That we can't breathe? I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. We cannot let this evil continue. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of this special series of WarPod, Reckoning with 9-11, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. Looking back 20 years on at the impacts of 9-11 across the world, Episode 6 looked at how authoritarians around the world have manipulated war on terrorism for their own ends. This seventh episode, Bringing It All Back Home, considers the implications of 9-11 for laws, freedoms, and ideals of Western countries. Welcome back, everyone. So, in our conversation so far, we've discussed how the global war on terror affected a variety of places in different ways, We started with its effects um, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, and Yemen, and then how the war on terror evolved with countering violent extremism programs, remote warfare, and what all this meant for people and politics in places like the Philippines, Egypt, Syria. But the war on terror didn't just change these countries in irreversible ways. It changed America and its Western allies as well. It's time now to look inside the country that suffered from the 9-11 attacks itself and started the war on terror. After 9-11, the drive to prevent further terrorist attacks and to confront terrorists and their backers profoundly changed not just how the US made war and conducted intelligence overseas, but it also reshaped what the Bush administration began calling the homeland profoundly altering U.S. democracy and politics, the standards expected of service and law enforcement personnel, the justice system, and the rights and freedoms of U.S. citizens. To discuss this and more, here today with us, we have Hina Shamsi, who is the director of the National Security Project at the ACLU, which has been advocating on civil liberties since the start of the war on terror, and Spencer Ackerman, a Pulitzer Prize a National Magazine award-winning reporter and the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, as well as the publisher of Forever Wars, a Substack newsletter on these themes. Kina, could you give us a broad overview of what were the first civil rights and liberties that took a blow after 9-11 domestically? Well, the list is really long. There were a range of abuses that were secret, the ones that took place abroad with respect to torture, extraordinary rendition, so-called black sites. And then at the same time, there were the ones at home, both secret and more visible. So amongst the secret things that were happening was mass surveillance of the kind that Edward Snowden later uh, revealed to reporters. But also domestically, there was a wave of anti-Muslim bigotry that spread across the country, and it spread against people who appeared to be Muslim, caught up other marginalized communities and people with views the government deemed unpopular. Just as one example, you know, there was the original Muslim registry when in 2002, the Bush administration established a 
Special Registration Program. It was formerly known as NSEERS, the National Security Entry Exit Registration System, which applied to boys and men 16 years and older who held non-citizen visas. And that program singled out Muslims based on country of origin. It continued in sort of a modified form for nearly 10 years. It never produced a single terrorism conviction. And approximately 85,000 people were forced to register for the program. Over 13,000 Muslims were removed from the country over the course of it. And it tore apart families and communities. The range of other abuses include, you know, the FBI's abuse of material witness warrants, where uh, the government was imprisoning Muslim men as material witnesses without any basis, emergency power-based terrorism designation of Muslim charities, so that by 2009, the Bush administration had shut down virtually all major U.S. Muslim charities through an abusive use of national security powers. There was vast and expanded FBI abuse of its claimed authorities, which ended up including racial and ethnic mapping, infiltration of mosques. And then there were also the implementation of a massive watchlisting system. People may know of the no-fly list, but this is a system now that has exponentially grown, stigmatizes people, largely Muslim, black and brown people in this country, and denies constitutional fundamental due process. So that's a partial list of, of some of what we were seeing during that era. What about the Patriot Act? How did that affect rights, liberties, and freedom of expression in the U.S.? The Patriot Act, massive document, um, massive legislation passed by Congress with, you know, the vast majority of members of Congress not even actually reading it, as we all came to find out later. And I think I'd single out a couple of things amongst the many issues with the Patriot Act. One is that it included for the first time a definition of domestic terrorism, which is vague and overbroad um, and which we and others warned at the time would ensnare people based on their beliefs and practices. And that's something that continues today. The other things that I think people might be more perhaps familiar with is that the Patriot Act essentially ushered in a new era of mass surveillance, provisions that authorize really intrusive searches and surveillance of people here in the United States. The government started issuing and continues to issue what are called national security letters, which are like, which are like subpoenas through which government law enforcement agencies demand that companies secretly turn over phone records and account information without any court approval. The Patriot Act authorized expansion of sneak and peek searches through which agents can secretly search homes, offices, and other property. That actually in 2020 has happened more than 19,000 times. And these sneak and peek searches, unlike ordinary criminal searches, the people whose property is searched and whose privacy is invaded only learn about those intrusions weeks or months after the fact. The executive branch originally justified its new powers on terrorism grounds, but the statistics that we now have show that sneak and peek searches are overwhelmingly used in ordinary criminal investigations. 
So in essence, the Patriot Act included a number of provisions that allowed for intrusive searches and surveillance ostensibly under for national security, terrorism related purposes. Many of those remain on the books and they have spread through the criminal legal system. Spencer, um, let's bring you in here and, and let's stay a bit with the mass surveillance, electronic mass surveillance that Hina mentioned. You referred to this in your book as a digital panopticon. On this point, given the current importance of tech giants like Google and Microsoft, it would just be good to you know, flesh it out for us. How far has all this gone under operations like Stellar Wind, Prism, Upstream, Muscular? Um, there's a lot going on, right? The post 9-11 era is an era in which surveillance of a scale previously not just unimaginable, but technologically infeasible, starts to not only develop, but expand and become functionally symbiotic with the 21st century capitalist economy. What starts after 9-11, in addition to the surveillance by the FBI that the Patriot Act authorizes, is a broad constellation of operations that have in common the acquisition of Americans and foreigners' communications, and particularly Americans' communications with foreigners, that bear no relationship to any suspicion of crime, bear no relationship to any individual suspicion at all. These are what are known as bulk surveillance programs. They take account holder information in bulk. Uh, so it starts out uh, with something called Stellar Wind with the National Security Agency entirely illegally deciding that it will collect the domestic phone records of Americans, the records of their international uh, communications, records of their email usage. This not only remains the case throughout the Bush administration, but once aspects of Stellar Wind are exposed, Congress reacts by legalizing it. In 2008, Congress passes a law, Barack Obama, as one of his final acts in the Senate, votes for it that creates a new exception within a law called FISA, which is supposed to be, as it says, um, ever since 1976 on the books, the quote unquote exclusive means by which national security surveillance inside the United States or upon Americans takes place. Instead, the NSA having already acquired all of this material outside the law, outside the Constitution, and outside the permission of Congress, Congress decides that international communications are acceptable for the NSA to collect. And what that becomes is a series of programs in which one is called PRISM, the NSA, through a mechanism we're still not entirely sure how it works, has access to the servers of the major internet platforms and social media companies, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Twitter, Apple, and several others, and probably more that we don't know about. 
As well, the NSA also uses this congressionally granted authority to collect communications in transit across the internet. That is a process known as upstream collection. Sometimes it has involved intercepting communications going to or from the servers of American companies. The reason for that is that American companies are defined by the law as U.S. persons that have constitutional rights and protections against intrusive surveillance like this. Hina mentioned as well that the Patriot Act becomes uh, this mechanism to authorize mass surveillance under Section 215, torturously redefined by National Security Agency and Justice Department attorneys to retroactively authorize in secret the domestic bulk collection of Americans' phone records. Most of these operations, now the phone records program is over, but most of these operations continue to this day, and they continue to expand, not even necessarily by specific act of the NSA or a specific decision, but by inertia. Under PRISM, we're seeing, the NSA is seeing what you know, frankly, we post what transactions we accomplish over the internet, what our behavior over the internet through a variety of formats looks like at scale. That is the cost of doing business in the 21st century. It is a way that capitalism and government surveillance occur basically by a handshake. It's just a sort of staggering insertion of the security state into the communications and the the lives of everyday Americans and their interactions with anyone overseas. So let's now turn to another aspect of what's going on, which is these kind of countering violent extremism programs. We've talked about CVE in uh, the previous episode as it has played out sort of internationally. But I think we also really need to hear about the impact that this has had inside the US Hina, let's bring you back in here. And could you give us a sense of what some of this meant? Part of what was happening in the early years after 9-11 was determination by the US government that they wanted to prevent terrible acts from occurring, you know, which sounds laudable, except that what the government focused on was prevention of what they called radicalization, which you still see in so much of the discourse and put in place these programs that have little or no scientific or evidentiary basis for addressing what are often ill-defined social problems that result in unmerited stigma, discrimination, infringement of the rights to equality, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion. And that means the government viewing American communities through a threat-based security lens, which targeted and continues to target Muslims, black and brown communities, as well as other you know, marginalized communities as these programs do. And I think it's important to point out that you know, much of this ended up also being formalized under the Obama administration, under the CVE or Countering Violent Extremism rubric. And what happened there was law enforcement and other agencies infiltrating and casting unwarranted suspicion on Muslims in America. The CVE program was, the Obama model was 
similar to and built on the United Kingdom's PREVENT program, which sought to do something similar. And both in the UK and here in the United States, not only were these programs deeply controversial, but they were rejected by impacted communities because they essentially call on and provide funding to law enforcement, social service providers, members of religious communities to identify people in their midst who they think, again, based on no valid scientific evidence or criteria, might be susceptible to violence. And so what ends up happening is that the criteria are specious, they're vague, they're overbroad, and as I said, encompass lawful speech, association, and religious belief. These programs continue in various guises. You know, the Trump administration of established what it was calling the Office of Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention within the Department of Homeland Security and saying that the TVTP office was created in part to investigate the, the rise in white supremacist violence and relying on uh, terrorism-related powers that only worsened what DHS and other agencies were doing wrongly to unfairly target uh, communities of color and, and, and in fact, social justice advocates. President Biden promised to end TVTP and conduct a thorough review of past programs, but he has since replaced it with a new center called the Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships that actually appears to be doubling down on the longstanding harmful and ineffective approaches. And we actually, you know, we've got Freedom of Information Act litigation that has made public tens of thousands of pages of records on these discriminatory and discredited programs, both abroad and and at home. I'll just add that these programs are a particular continuation of a particular approach where Muslims, Black and Brown people continue to be targeted that remains on the books and is deeply problematic. So, you know, in the summer before 9-11, Congress was poised to pass the End Racial Profiling Act, which Black communities, communities of color had sought for decades to end bias-based profiling by law enforcement. After 9-11, that was off the books. And fast forward to 2014, where under President Obama, the Justice Department, followed swiftly by the Homeland Security Department adopted so-called guidance on race that purported to ban bias profiling by law enforcement, but carved out exceptions for national security and border integrity. And through those exceptions, the already terrible practices of bias profiling by law enforcement were put into place as guidance for our two departments that incorporate the nation's law enforcement federal policing. So one of the things we have pushed for, communities are pushing for, is to end some of these terrible practices, end the loopholes in the guidance on race. I would also add that very often we don't sufficiently recognize the degree to which the American Muslim community is a Black community or several Black communities. A tremendous amount of white America comes to Islamophobia through anti-Black racism. The FBI, ever since Malcolm X, has been concerned with the, as they puts it, subversive potential 
of, in particular, Black Muslims um, in America. So this is a deep, very historically rooted, uh, structurally racist powder keg that 9-11 detonates. The Obama administration also portrayed CVE as community relations, community outreach, and denied consistently that it was an intelligence gathering program. Uh, when I worked for The Guardian, we got documents in which the CVE people internally refer to themselves as conducting an intelligence gathering program. So in addition to all of the coercion of CVE, there is also a layer of deception. Um, and this was how liberals in the Obama administration understood the war on terror to be moving away from a discriminatory enterprise. Instead, what they did was entrench one. And it's also important to remember that while all of this targeting of Muslim communities is going on, there is accelerated white supremacist political violence in the United States. So CVE's claim of ecumenicism, that it's agnostic to whose political violence is at issue here, has always been deceitful. It has been a program that investigated Muslim communities in the United States while ignoring accelerated terrorism within white communities in the United States. Thank you both for clarifying this. I was wondering, Spencer, whether I could pick your brain and go through another key trend related to the war on terror in the US, which is the militarization of American police forces. So, for example, there have been $500 million worth of military equipment the Defense Department gave US police in 2011 alone. How does this connect the war on terror to the situation on the streets of the US? There's an unfortunate tendency in American uh, foreign policy discussion to view the United States as kind of doing, you know, different things uh, qualitatively abroad and at home. When in fact, when you look at the war on terror, you see that what the United States does at home to its own people is what the United States also does abroad. Nothing could more succinctly explain this than the evolution of American policing in the era of the war on terror. So to give you know the example that you bring up, the Pentagon under a program called 1033 provides no longer useful military hardware to police departments in the United States. That was happening before the war on terror. But when the Department of Homeland Security was created after 9-11, one of its central rationales was to ensure that communities across the country were hardened targets against terrorism. What that meant in practice was that the Department of Homeland Security would act as a laundry for public money to go to police departments to buy terrorism-relevant hardware, which in practice meant hardened vehicles, increased surveillance devices, data processing for all of the new data acquisition, acoustic devices to disperse crowds, less lethal weaponry to use against demonstrations, and body armor of the sort that 
took what was already a kind of accelerated, almost hysterical and jingoistic quasi-worship of people in uniform into American police departments. What the Pentagon provided to cop shops around the country was only a third of the amount of money that the Department of Homeland Security provided. And under the law, uh, in kind of a sick reflection that the United States does not, in fact, face the level of terrorist violence that the culture of the war on terror portrayed, police departments only have to spend about 25% of what they get from these Department of Homeland Security grants on terrorism-relevant hardware. So in fact, what you have is an open spigot of money to police departments that are going to use it in normal uh, criminal or you know non-criminal cases. And what you also had was the transformation of specific police departments. To give one extremely important example, after 9-11, the NYPD, the New York Police Department, reinvents itself in the image of the CIA. The department's intelligence division takes on a former CIA official who allows serving CIA officials to set up a system of infiltration across New York City's Muslim communities to functionally entrap people into crimes, encourage them through the use of informants to commit crimes and then prosecute them for it. But more often they weren't necessarily interested in making specific cases. What they were interested in, in the words of these officials themselves, was in understanding these communities, which meant sending undercover officers into coffee shops, into businesses, and even into mosques to simply take the measure, take the temperature of communities as they related to uh, political speech. The idea was that Muslim communities were sheltering terrorists. We have to just understand what that is. That is straight up violations of the law in the service of racism. If I could just add there, I'm so glad that Spencer brought up the NYPD's Muslim surveillance program because uh, my colleagues and I had the privilege of representing three religious and community leaders, two mosques and a Muslim charity all of whom were subjected to this unconstitutional religious profiling program and filed suit on their behalf in 2013, essentially just exposing and laying out the ways in which the NYPD operated under that unconstitutional premise that Muslim beliefs and practices were a basis for law enforcement scrutiny. Thanks to the work of community leaders and organizers were having these conversations in policing about structural racism in policing. And I think what we need to do is have far more, because you don't see it as much in the policy context, is conversations about structural racism in national security policy. Thank you, Hina and Spencer. I mean, I think this brings us to exactly the point where we need to get to which is surveillance, erosion of civil liberties, intelligence gathering and infiltration of communities, counterviolent extremism programs, which aren't what they say they are. You've mentioned the issue of structural racism. 
I think we need to take a step back and understand why all of this has been happening. And I think your book, Spencer, is is really strong in narrating the extraordinary story that America has been on. You have changes in politics, in in culture, so not just the expansion of powers, but on the refusal of accountability by the security state, the political power that's gained by those who are championing the war on terrorism and attacking people who are soft on it, Islamophobia, and the links that are there that you've made in your work to things like structural racism. And underneath it, those cultural shifts like TV shows like 24 and other things. So those changes in the politics and the culture that have underpinned the war on terror's reign in America. Yes. So in the national security community's discussions throughout the past 20 years of the war on terror, there has been a deep reluctance to understanding what the culture and the politics of the war on terror are, which is to say the political, social, and economic forces that drive the war on terror. We should understand the war on terror as a gateway to the most nativist, racist, and violent aspects of American history, given a pathway to power under an atmosphere of righteous patriotic violence, that the culture of the war on terror is a nativist culture. It treats Muslims, it treats foreigners, and it treats American citizens who are Muslim as conditionally American, whose freedoms can be taken away from them, and who, because of a hysterical misunderstanding and deliberate ignorance of the relationship between Islam and terrorism, to be seen as internal threats in not just a specific terrorism context, but particularly as the war advances, as civilizational threats. Before white supremacists in polo shirts with tiki torches were marching in Charlottesville, talking about how they will not be replaced, the language of this so-called replacement theory was all throughout the war on terror. Gingrich gives a speech around 2010 as he's preparing to run for president, talking about how Sharia law must not be allowed to replace the Constitution. What this means in practice is that not that there's any need to confront some kind of sea change in judicial theory that elevates religious practice and custom above civil law. No, never was that happening. What was happening instead was an explosion of an already existing demagogic atmosphere in order to ensure that Muslims enjoyed fewer and fewer civil rights, enjoyed no civic respect, and that institutions that might protect those civil freedoms, whether they're the courts, whether they're internal bureaucracies, whether they're media organizations, also are demonized as part of the process of suspicion of terrorism sympathies. This cannot be separated from the war on terror, particularly once we started seeing how 
as the wars abroad became more and more agonizing, the internal appetite for taking civilizational revenge at targets closer to home, like marginalized communities, grew. This is what the war on terror has always been. Time, pain, and justification has only allowed it to expand its aperture to more and more people and threaten more and more freedom. Thank you, Spencer. I would like to ask this question to you both now to conclude this conversation. Is there, you believe, a chance for the country to move beyond the 9-11 paradigm and restore freedom more effectively? Where are we heading, you think? Throughout American history, the only thing that has ever changed America for the better is solidarity put into practice through mass movements that demand politicians choose between their continued power and the agenda of a mass movement for justice. I don't really like to think in terms of hope because I think part of what we have to understand as central to the politics of solidarity is obligation, that it is the obligation of Americans to end the war on terror in solidarity with not only our marginalized neighbors, but all of those overseas whom the war on terror targets. And I think that with the Biden administration uh, pulling out of Afghanistan, there is a real moment where such a mass politics might coalesce as the operations of the war on terror are self-discrediting and the mechanisms of the war on terror are so dangerously applicable against the institutions of democracy that Americans cherish and, of course, American lives themselves are in the balance. I couldn't agree more with Spencer about the importance of solidarity. I do like to think of things in terms of hope because I continue to find it as a source of inspiration and energy. So I think about, for example, the solidarity that came really just as a result of years of work by Black organizers and Black leaders with the racial justice protests last summer that swept the country and that drew connections between communities, even as we were all out on the streets, so many people were out on the street protesting against killing of Black people and the policing abuses against Black people. And leaders, community leaders were lifting up those issues, but also drawing the connections to militarization abroad and at home. And I also think it is absolutely not just possible, but necessary to dismantle the architecture of the post 9-11 era and its responses. There's a lot to be done, but there are absolutely ways to do it. And I'm inspired by and continue to believe in the resilience of new generations of young people who are becoming civil and human rights leaders and are refusing to accept status quo because we don't have a choice. The status quo is harmful 
it hurts people. It hurts primarily Black, Brown, Muslim people. Increasingly now, it's always been the case, but in policy approaches by the government against the Chinese government, anti-Asian discrimination is also on the rise. So solidarity across these impacted communities and people and a recognition that the authorities that were put in place before the 9-11 era, that were worsened after the 9-11 era, are harming all of us and need to end. Thank you both very much indeed both for those insights into what's a complex story and has been shrouded in much secrecy, but also for everything you've done to document that and tell the world and to uh, challenge those trends. Thank you. Reckoning with 9-11. So it's clear from this conversation with Spencer and Hina that the war the U.S. launched to defend freedom around the world actually ended up changing the nature of U.S. democracy itself in, in quite fundamental ways. Now, let's try to understand the extent to which these changes were mirrored in other powerful countries around the world, particularly in Western democracies. Joining us to tell us about these changes uh, is Josef Braml, who is Secretary General of the German Group of the Trilateral Commission and the author of Anti-Terrorism Laws and Powers, an Inventory of the G20 States 20 Years After 9-11. Josef, welcome. Firstly, can you explain the scope of the study you did? Um, what was the main research question and which countries were you looking at specifically? In response to the terrorist attacks of 9-11 20 years ago, many countries passed anti-terrorism laws. I didn't look into all of them, but uh, into the G20 countries comprising the 19 most important industrialized and newly industrialized countries and the European Union. The focus of this study uh, was on national laws and measures in the context of the fight against terrorism. I examined whether in these countries panel regulations have either been modified or newly created and whether military legislation provides the relevant legal framework or whether counterterrorism operations have been conducted in a legal vacuum like the US did in Guantanamo. Accordingly, these measures taken by states are either aimed at prosecuting crimes or have been looking into preventing possible attacks. So preventive law, if you want to quote uh, John Ashcroft's doctrine. Thanks, Josef. So as we've discussed earlier in the episode, in the US post 9-11, there was this shift towards mass surveillance, detentions without charge, suspicion of immigrants, militarization of policing. What parallels were there in countries outside the US? And you know, were they doing the same things? Why do you think that is? Tell us more. Most countries uh, passed anti-terrorism laws after 9-11, and there's a reason for that, because there was U.S. pressure also by the United Nations. So uh, civil liberties have been restricted and uh, law enforcement powers have been expanded in the name of national security. U.S. has been the foremost driver of all this, of counterterrorism legislation, not at least through this U.N. Counterterrorism Committee. As early as September 28, 2001, 
United Nations Security Council ratified Resolution 1373, the most important one, which called on all UN member states to adopt anti-terrorism laws. But it has also been force of terrorist attacks uh, also in Europe uh, that have also contributed to further measures, to further intensification of security measures, uh, which have already been taken after 9-11. Yeah, and so can you give us a little bit more detail around some of the measures? I mean, some of what your report captures is quite breathtaking. For example, 80 new security laws were enacted in Australia between 2001 and 2019, and France had a state of emergency in, in place for two full years. So, yeah, give us a flavour of the sort of extent of these changes in the places that you've covered. Those countries haven't all been using uh, waterboarding and other torture measures, uh, which have also been applied uh, in, in authoritarian states. But in democratic states, especially many of the originally temporary encroachments on privacy, uh, say monitoring telecommunications or recording biometric features, uh, remain in force up to today. Uh, and uh, they have been normalized. They have been written into permanent law. So we still live with it. As we speak, we are probably listened in by at least one secret service in this world. Wow, it's it's incredible to contemplate sort of a, a spread of surveillance powers on that kind of scale. And as you say, often countries were sort of saying, well, we need to do this for the time being, while there's an urgent threat, but temporary became permanent. Is that the story that you covered there in your report? Even 20 years later, these measures still have not been revoked. Uh, many of the laws uh, and directives that were passed in an exceptional situation are still in force. And in the meantime, they have even been expanded. But then, Josef, there were some countries, a few of them, who didn't go so far as the US or Australia, for that matter. Which countries was that and why? That was the most important, uh, most interesting finding. Younger democracies such as Argentina, Brazil and South America or Japan and South Korea in East Asia are extremely vigilant in protecting the personal freedoms of their citizens through a system of checks and balances, which exists in the US as well <laughs> on paper, but which wasn't followed. But to date, these leaders uh, of these countries who still have historical memory, and I think that's the main reason, of the horrors of previous military regimes have also largely withstood international pressure, especially from the US, to implement stricter counterterrorism guidelines. Overall, the study paints a picture that is rather depressing, and those countries that didn't go as far as the US probably did so because, or didn't do so because of historical reasons. What do you think this all means and where do we go from this point? What would be your recommendations? I give you two recommendations. Uh, one is, is from a famous one, Ben Franklin, and the other one from me. So let's start with the famous one. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. That's a powerful word, but uh, let's finish with something less uh, less uh, famous, my words, 
Be careful and do not squeeze all the toothpaste out of the tube because you won't get it back in again. Thank you, Josef. Reckoning with 9-11. So where does all of this leave us? This rise in the powers of the security state in the wake of 9-11, the vast expansion of mass surveillance, but also the erosion of civil liberties, especially for Muslims, and the rise of nativism and Islamophobia, and the growing militarization of society and especially policing, much of all of this advanced in secret and in ways that were unaccountable. And it's just an extraordinary story is an extraordinary evolution in the nature of U.S. democracy, in the name of defending which the war on terror was initiated. Yeah, and it's all the more extraordinary when you consider that it became clear quite quickly after 9-11 that terrorism wasn't a primary or an existential threat for America and Americans. Mm -hmm. The threat of terrorism was, of course, real, but it was mostly concentrated by this time in places destabilised by the post-9-11 wars. In fact, in, in 2012, Nicholas Kristof observed that more Americans die in gun homicides and suicides in six months than have died in the last 25 years in every terrorist attack and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. And around this time, journalists and researchers were regularly pointing out that the list of things more likely to kill Americans than terrorism included bathtubs and toilets, vending machines, animals, insects, DIY accidents, alcohol, lightning strikes, even being crushed by their own furniture. So it is in this climate of threat inflation, as we've heard from our speakers today, that counter-terror powers were eroding democracy in a wide range of countries well beyond US shores. 20 years on, this 9-11 paradigm, where fear is mobilized to expand the powers of the security state to wage a warfare that is very much counterproductive and to discredit those offering concerned critique and lessons learning, it still has much of the world in its grip. Next time, in our final episode, we'll be looking at whether 20 years after 9-11, it is going to be possible to learn lessons and change this paradigm. This special Warpod series, Reckoning with 9-11, is brought to you by Safer World, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. It is produced by The Podcast Company. Next time on The Reckoning, we discuss if the 9-11 paradigm is here to stay or the world is now ready to move on. Listen, follow, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And for more reflections from guests and co-hosts on the consequences of 9-11 and where we go from here, check out their articles at justsecurity.org, produced in cooperation with Safer World. Safer World.